it's pretty cool that we have missions to Mars and all this stuff, but at the end of the day, this is just a really big example of the ends supposedly justifying the means. Well, to me, the ends never justify the means if the means involve violating the individual rights of others. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. Welcome, welcome, welcome once again, my friends, my fans, heck, even my enemies, if you're listening. I'm just glad you're listening to this show. This is episode 108. Now, before we get into the show today, I would be remiss to not tell you about this amazing concept of health sharing and the package that our sponsors from Health Excellence Select have put together. If you have been frustrated with your health insurance, as I once was myself, head on over to lionsofliberty.com health for more information. My guest today is a research fellow at the Mises Institute and a professor in the Division of Applied Social Sciences at the University of Missouri. His writing has been published in the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics, The Free Market, and the Review of Austrian Economics, as well as over at Mises.org. Peter Klein, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Hi, Mark. Great to be here. Well, it's great to have you on, Peter. Great to finally speak with you today. And, you know, Peter, you're knowledgeable in so many areas, but today we'll focus on your specific areas of expertise, those being science and technology. But before we get into that, why don't you just tell us a little bit about how you first began down this path, that, of course, being the path towards the ideas of liberty and free markets. Sure. Well, I was interested in liberty and free markets, gosh, going back to my college days, I uh, wasn't really an activist, but I um, read and studied a lot on my own and was able to meet a few like-minded folks. This was, of course, in the ancient, ancient days before the Internet, when uh, the only way to get books by Mises or Rothbard or Hayek was to dig them out of a dusty old library. And I had the funny experience that some of your older listeners may have also had, of you know, going to the library and getting some free market economics book and finding that it hadn't been checked out you know, since 1962 or something. <laughs> uh, nowadays, fortunately, it's a lot easier to find materials on liberty and free markets, but it was a little bit harder in those days. Um, so I, I decided I wanted to be an academic, and I went to get a, a graduate degree in economics and to become a professor. You know, after I was sort of already interested in free market ideas and Austrian economics, so my, my training, my professional training, is all in kind of the mainstream standard stuff. And most of my academic postings have been at universities that were not, you know, especially devoted to the liberty message, to Austrian economics specifically. Uh, but I've been able to do, you know, sort of build a career combining some insights and techniques that come out of mainstream economics with those that come out of the Austrian school and free market thinking more generally. And why did you decide to kind of focus your work a little more as you went along and at least a lot of your research and the things you write about on the fields of science and technology, particularly as they relate to government? Right. Well, I was always more interested in so-called microeconomics as opposed to macroeconomics. So while I do pay attention to business cycles, you know, national economic policy, monetary and fiscal policy, what the Fed is doing and so on, I've always had more of a research interest in firms and industries. And, you know, like many people nowadays, of course, I'm interested in technology as a consumer. And, you know, I've seen huge uh, changes in, you know, not only in you know, sort of how we do things in our personal lives, but especially in the educational field. 
in the field of education, training, knowledge discovery, knowledge dissemination. I mean, that's what I do for a living is read and write and lecture and travel to meet people and so forth. And I've seen huge changes in what I'm able to do professionally and personally and what, uh, uh, you know, how the education field has been transformed by technological innovation. So I wanted to apply some of the theories and techniques and research literatures that I'm familiar with to understand the process of innovation itself. And as as you well know, um, this is a field where uh, there's a lot of confusion because even many people who think that free markets are good in general or people who would be happy to entrust the free market with providing shoes or, you know, housing or automobiles feel like science and technology is kind of an exception to that rule. And they think you need a strong government role in guiding and shaping and subsidizing and so forth. And one of my, uh, you know, great passions has been to sort of challenge that mindset and show that free markets are pretty good at science, technology and innovation, too. Yeah, it really is amazing when I think about how much technology has moved along even since, I mean, I was born in 1980. And when I was growing up, I didn't hear about email or even really computers. People didn't generally even have computers in their house necessarily. And and then as I got into my teens, suddenly we're bombarded with all this stuff. Email, AOL. And now, even fast forward 15 years later, I can't even imagine a world without the internet being a, an every second part of my life almost. I mean, I, I have the internet with me in my pocket at all times. It's just absolutely fascinating. But many people will kind of go ahead and, I guess, give all the credit for this to the government, to having a quote-unquote strong government. And to me, uh, when you say strong government, you really just mean a coercive rights violation violating government, and that's something I would completely oppose, uh, no matter what the sort of uh, great technological outcomes, if that were the only way to get to them. But fortunately, I don't think that is really the only way to get to some of this great stuff. So before we get into some specifics, why don't you just kind of outlay, I mean, I know you mentioned how people do have that myth, that theory that we must have this very strong government in order to achieve such technological advances. But what are the biggest, I guess, overall misconceptions out there about the government's involvement in science and technology? Right. Well, let me start by saying, you know, there is some truth to the statement that, um, you know, most people as they're going about their daily lives uh, are not especially concerned with, you know, sort of deep philosophical issues. That's why we have have always had specialized institutions of higher learning, colleges and universities and so on, most of which throughout human history have been funded by wealthy individual philanthropists, churches, uh, other sorts of patrons, and sometimes kings as well, because you know, there is a role for people who philosophize about these topics and scientists who study issues that really don't have any obvious practical implication, at least not right away. Now, of course, as we know, a lot of the technologies that we use today are based on very fundamental scientific breakthroughs that were made you know, many years or even generations past when it wasn't known what the application would be. So it's true that there is a sort of a special place in the economy for things like basic science. The question is, is that something that we need coercive government to do, or can we rely on free market forces to do it? And one of the things that we've seen in recent years that's sort of interesting is there's been a huge increase in non-government spending on real pie-in-the-sky basic science, you know, wormholes and you know, all sorts of things that don't have any practical, obvious practical implication. But private companies have been funding a lot of 
basic scientific research. Philanthropy, of course, funds a lot of basic scientific research. And it's simply not the case that everyone in a market economy is always concerned only with sort of the short-term bottom line, and that therefore there will be no place in a free market, in a free society, for people to investigate sort of very big, deep issues, just as we continue to have fine art and music and literature and so forth in a free market. Now, the reason that this is important is because there's this sort of you know, philosophical divide or important divide between so-called basic science and applied science. Now, most of the critics of the free market will point out that, yeah, companies like Microsoft and Google and, you know, Apple and so forth are very good at doing applied science, right? They can build a device that you can hold in your hand that will do cool things, but they're so short-term oriented, they are not capable of doing basic scientific discovery of investing in technologies that may not pay off right away. Um, the truth is that the most important scientific breakthroughs, the discoveries in basic science, have in fact come from participants on the free market, from private individuals, inventors, private companies, private research institutes, and so forth. So we don't need the state to be subsidizing basic science any more than we need the state to be taking over the phone industry and trying to do all applied sort of R&D and applied technology. Oh, Peter, that, that all sounds well and good to me, but my progressive friends keep kind of hammering this point home to me that the government invented the Internet and, and they use that as the proof, the evidence that, therefore, we do actually need that strong, coercive government to be out there funding this stuff because as much as we might like to dream about the free market and we can point to a few things here or there, we wouldn't have this amazing technology known as the Internet without the government. So what would your response to that be? Is, this, is there truth to that statement? You did mention earlier that there, that there is actually some truth to that statement. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's a couple of different ways to think about it. I mean, first of all, it certainly is true that the government in the U.S. and in most countries does, government does a lot of things. The government builds things. The government takes money from the private sector and devotes it to other sorts of activities. Um, you know, the, the NASA, the space program, was not a private sector initiative. So, yes, had it not been for the federal government, we probably would not have put a man on the moon. On the other hand, you know, you could look at the Egyptian pyramids. Had it not been for the pharaoh, you know, and, and the ability to coerce, to get slave labor and to expropriate funds from all of the peoples that he conquered and so forth, we wouldn't have had the pyramids. Uh, if it weren't for the U.S. federal government, we wouldn't have, you know, the Washington Monument and so forth. But it doesn't follow that it's good that the Egyptians had the pyramids, that it's good that we have the Washington Monument, or that it's good that we have the particular Internet that we have. So many of your readers will already be familiar with the story that uh, what we now call the Internet sort of grew out of mostly governmental research in the 1960s and 1970s, much of it defense-related. The so-called ARPANET, which was established to allow government bases and other government organizations to communicate. Other parts of this network were made available to university researchers who wanted to find efficient ways to share time on a server and to communicate with other scholars around the world. You know, this is what sort of gradually over time evolved into the private commercial Internet. So, in other words, it is true that the underlying infrastructure of the modern commercial Internet is based on technologies that were developed by government labs and government scientists. But it doesn't follow that, you know, the particular technologies that the government invested in are necessarily the best ones. We could have had a commercial internet 
even without that government investment, and we might have had an even better one. So uh, there were lots of private competing network technologies in the 1960s and 1970s. Not all of them had access to the lucrative you know, federal treasury. And so the technologies that won out were the ones that were government-backed. But there are lots of other technologies, too. You mentioned AOL. Some of your older readers will remember CompuServe and Prodigy. There were private corporate networks that large companies like IBM were using. Any one of those might have sort of morphed into the modern, open commercial Internet and might have been a much better Internet than the one that we have now, which, in fact, in many ways is very inefficient because of the particular you know technologies that are used to, to send little bits of information around. So to make a long story short, the government was, in a sense, responsible for some of the backbone and sort of basic infrastructure of the Internet. But like anything else, the government didn't do that well. The private sector could have done it better. And we might actually be better off today if we had not had the Defense Department sucking all those resources from taxpayers and giving them to favored defense contractors and university researchers who came up with the technologies that we're now using. Yeah, it's very easy to kind of look at the world around us and look at the internet and look at all the innovation and look at Facebook and look at my iPhone and and say how great it is and say, thank God the government made the internet in the way it did. But that doesn't address the how the world could potentially have developed if we didn't have that. And there's really no way to say exactly how that would have taken place. But it's, it, I think it's very apparent that there still would be an internet. And, and like you said, it might be much better. It might be much more efficient. It might be delivered more efficiently. Yeah. That's kind of one of the points of contention lately, uh, especially with the call for government regulation of the Internet. You know, a lot of people are upset at the idea that companies want to kind of charge more for services such as Netflix, which might be using more bandwidth. And this is essentially, and you can correct me here, you're more of the expert, this is essentially what's behind the call for this net neutrality ruling that was recently handed down by the FCC. So can you describe a little bit what is behind the call for net neutrality, first of all, for those that might not be familiar with the specifics of the issue? I would think of it this way. Think of streets and roads, right? So there are public roads that have been built by the government that connect cities and so forth, city streets. There are also private toll roads. Uh, you can think of, you know, toll roads that connect cities. You can think of the roads within a private park or think about, you know, the way you get within Disneyland from one part of the park to another on the monorail or on the Disney bus or whatever. I mean, there are lots of different ways to transport people from one place to another. The government model is we build something, it is free and open for anybody to use. You don't charge prices to use it. So we have the phenomenon that often goes by the title, the tragedy of the commons, right? That we have, we have traffic jams and highway congestion because there's no way to regulate traffic on a government-owned, government-operated road that doesn't have any sort of user fees that is free and open to everybody. And of course, you think, oh, well, well gosh, of course, we want the roads to be free and open to anybody. But if you've ever sat in, you know, an L.A. traffic jam for a few hours. Oh, I have many a time. <laughs> yeah, you think maybe a toll road system would be better. So here's the analogy. The way the Internet was designed, this packet switching technology that came out of uh, DARPA and other groups, what we were talking about before, it's really not designed to prioritize traffic. Sort of all of the traffic gets dumped into a big bucket and all gets routed around the different parts of the network. And there's really, it's very difficult to prioritize different pieces of information. Now, you might think, I mean, look, when you're on the, out driving around in your car, if an ambulance is coming up behind you, you know, the, the siren, the flashing lights, 
Most people will pull over to the side and let that ambulance go through. Why? Because you figure, well, you know, that could be somebody's grandmother in the ambulance. They're rushing that person to the emergency room. It's a matter of life and death. Yes, it's inconvenient for me to have to pull over. Now I'm going to miss, you know, I might be late to my, uh, you know, to get to work out at the gym. But that's that's not as important as letting the sick person get to the hospital. So we understand that some traffic on the highways might actually be more important than other kinds of traffic. Uh, likewise, on the network, it might be the case that we want to let certain pieces of information go first, you know, go through first. So you and I are doing this interview right now, you know, but we're not broadcasting it live. And even though you and I think this is extremely important stuff, um, you know, if we had to postpone it till tomorrow, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. Well, what if the same, you know, uh, pipe that our data is shooting down was also needed for, you know, some surgical procedure that's going on right now and the surgeon in New York needs to get, needs to consult with a colleague in London and, you know, it's got to be done right now and it's a matter of life and death for somebody who's on the operating table. It would be nice if that transmission could get through first. You know, if you and I had some buffering in our conversation, it would be a pain, but we would deal with it. But we don't want buffering in the conversation between surgeons. So we want a kind of network where it's possible for different parties, providers of content, owners of different pieces of the network, receivers of content, to bargain and negotiate and work out deals where you can pay different prices to get different pieces of information through in different ways. We want all the parties in uh, operating on the network like any other commodity to be able to bargain and negotiate and work out commercial arrangements that serve the cause of economic efficiency. So in other words, if my local ISP and a content provider like Netflix or a broadband operator, you know, want to work out some kind of a deal where if I'm going to watch Netflix, I've got to pay a premium or maybe my provider pays the premium and then bills it to me. If they want to let other kinds of traffic go through more quickly in exchange for some kind of side payment, well, I mean, this is how the commercial world works. This is how a free market works. Parties are free to negotiate things. I mean, just to use one silly example, you know, when you walk into the grocery store, right, you might see a big display right in front of you, you know, Bud Light, and there's a big display with a bunch of Bud Light and some promotional stuff. Why is that fair? Well, because Bud Light or a distributor of Bud Light paid your grocery store to allow them to put that display up in the front. If we had something like grocery store neutrality, that would be a federal law that says the grocery store cannot put any company's product in front of any other company's product. Every company has to have access to the same shelf space in the grocery store. Of course, that's not only is that physically impossible, because there's only so much shelf space, you got to have some way of deciding what goes where. It's also not desirable. I mean, there may be some products that are better products or they're being marketed more aggressively, and we want the grocery store to be able to prioritize certain products over others. If I don't like it, I can go to another grocery store. Likewise, I want my ISP to be able to work deals with content providers to prioritize certain items if they want. If, if I don't like it, I can go to another ISP. Now, what makes this complicated, more complicated in the, in the internet case than in the grocery store case, is the fact that government is already kind of heavily involved in the internet and communications industry, right? I mean, all of the players that I'm talking about are not angels or saints. The ISPs, a lot of them have local government monopoly privileges. There's all sorts of subdivisions and so forth. 
some people are restricted in their choice of ISP because of local government monopoly privilege. Well, the solution to that problem is to get rid of the monopoly privilege to fully deregulate ISPs, broadband, and so forth, and then let everybody compete. Imposing net neutrality is sort of a, a, a you know a cure that's worse than the disease. Oh, Peter, you, you kind of beat me to my next question there because that, that's kind of what I was going to ask you because, I mean, in, in so many ways, the what you're saying makes so much sense. You know, in a truly unre- in a free market, we would really have the ability to charge different people different things for different packets of information and that sort of thing, and people could pay more based on the kind of services they're using. But the problem here is we're not really in a free market, as you just said, and it seems like in many ways the call for net neutrality in some ways does come from a legitimate place in the sense that, yeah, you know, we would prefer a free market, but at the same time, we don't have that. As you mentioned, we have a, a situation where, I mean, for myself right now, if I'm not happy with my internet here with Time Warner, I can choose Verizon. And if I'm not happy with them, I can go back to Time Warner. And <laughs> those are basically my options. So it seems like we're in a really tough spot here where, yes, net neutrality is by no means any sort of free market solution. But at the same time, if we just end net neutrality or shut down the calls for that, but stick with what we have now, it's hard for me to even say which is which is better or worse because now we're just, then we're just stuck back in this crony capitalist situation and we're not progressing at all. So what would you say to that that objection? I guess the the idea that you know it's it's nice to say in your fantasy world that the free market would would do this and and handle all this and we wouldn't need net neutrality, but we don't live in that world. So and 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 as much as you might like to curtail back the crony capitalism, these local municipalities aren't doing it anytime soon. So in the meantime, we do need net neutrality. So what would you say to that? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a reasonable objection. I certainly understand that sentiment. I mean, the general sort of way to think about this is if you have a bad situation where government is doing a bad thing on the left hand, you know, giving government the power to control the right hand as a way of sort of compensating for or mitigating the damage caused by the regulation on the left hand. I mean, historically, this is, has almost never been a good situation. This almost never leads to improvement. It basically just gets government regulation it gets government, different types of governments either even further, you know, ingrained into this market. It makes things even more complicated, more messy. In my mind, it makes it harder rather than easier for us to ultimately get to the goal of having a true sort of free and open market. I mean, in the case of net neutrality specifically, there's a lot of much more technical analyses of how net neutrality rules would be enforced. But I'm not at all convinced that, you know, even if we said, well, it's never going to get better. The ISPs are never going to have their monopoly power taken away. Therefore, this is sort of the, the second best kind of solution. Even in that case, I'm not convinced that the net neutrality rules as they're written will actually make things better rather than worse. We always, Mark, you know, are looking for small victories and we'll take incremental improvement where we can get it, even if we can't get sort of the next big thing, uh, the, the true thing that we want. But I don't think even in, in that framework, the net neutrality rules that have been recently enacted are moving us in the right direction. And of course, there, there are other dangers to be kept in mind too. A lot of people, as you know, are worried that, well, you know, once you give the, the FCC and other government agencies sort of a foot in the door where they can have some control over pricing, well, what other things will they want to have control over too? Maybe they'll want to have some control over content. Maybe they'll want to have more sort of back doors built into different things to allow the NSA to have easier access and so forth. It's kind of like, I don't know, saying we need the FCC and government regulators to prevent bad ISPs from doing certain things. I mean, it's got a little bit of the, you know, fox guarding the hen house kind of flavor to it. Do you really want to put these guys in charge of making sure that Comcast 
or Time Warner or Verizon doesn't screw you over. I mean, these regulators don't exactly have a great track record in protecting the consumer. It's much more likely that they'll team up with Time Warner and Comcast and Verizon to screw you over even more. Uh, Peter, this is interesting stuff. I got just a couple more questions for you, but first I need to take a minute out to give a little love to our sponsors over at Health Excellence Select. Believe me, guys, I know nobody likes dealing with health insurance companies. It's bad enough that you're sick, but now, thanks to the ACA, you're forced to pay for all sorts of coverage you don't even want or need, and the odds are you are indeed paying for it. I was frustrated, too, until I did some research and found out about health sharing, where like-minded, health-conscious individuals get together to cover each other's medical costs. And now the fine folks at Health Excellence Select have taken it to another level with a complete healthcare service combining health sharing with personal care assistance to help you find the doctors that you need at the best price, 24-7 phone access to physicians, along with discounts on dental and vision. And if that wasn't enough, they even have a website that works, if you can believe that. Guys, if you are struggling with a solution to your health care needs, look no further than Health Excellence Select. For more information, head on over to lionsofliberty.com health. So, Peter, let's picture for a moment just our sort of fantasy world, a world where we can say there's no net neutrality, and on top of that, there's no sort of crony capitalist structure to the the way the Internet is delivered. Local municipalities, we can end all those deals overnight and actually have a true free market. So how would you envision that sort of unfolding? Do you think we'd have insanely faster Internet right now? Do you think we'd have just a myriad of providers? I mean, obviously, we can't really look into a crystal ball, but how do you kind of envision that unfolding if we could get what we wanted, if we could get a scaling back of the crony capitalism, if we could get a rejection of net neutrality? That's a great question. And uh, I mean, you've already sort of given as part of your suggested answer, what I would give as my major caveat, namely, you know, sort of I don't know. And, and the beauty of a free market system is that if we unleash the power of entrepreneurs to figure out creative solutions to things, you know, they would come up with scenarios that you and I can't even imagine today. But, you know, given what we do know today, there are certainly some technological obstacles to getting the kind of you know, fantastic internet that we would want with much higher speeds and much more accessibility and so on, you know, building more towers finding better algorithms for compressing data and so forth. But I think most of the problems that we have today are not so much technology related, but, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're regulatory and sort of business model related. This is a question of not having the necessary infrastructure, not having enough bandwidth, not having good mechanisms for prioritizing data. I think we can say if we look across different industries, if you compare, you know, the, the laptop or handheld you know, tablet or phone sort of manufacturing industries and compare them to the post office or, you know, the DMV or the steel industry or the agricultural sector or other industries that are much more entwined with government, much more heavily subsidized and regulated by government than, say, the, you know, handset manufacturing industry. You know, it's pretty obvious where we see rapid technological innovation and where we don't. And so I feel confident in saying that if we really did deregulate you know, the sort of delivery mechanism, we would have the same kind of innovation, the same rate of innovation that we've seen, you know, in, in app development or in handheld development or something like that. We, we'd have faster networks, we'd have you know, more efficient networks and so forth. One interesting example, one of the great things that entrepreneurs do when they're free to do so, right, is they sort of think outside the box, they come up with new technologies that we might not at the moment 
think of as potential improvements or substitutes. One thing, uh, an analogy I like to use is uh, electricity, right? So a lot of people compare broadband to electricity. They say, well, look, it's not efficient to have, you know, 18 different companies competing to provide you with electric service because then you'd have to lay all these extra wires. You know, there needs to be just one set of wires going through neighborhoods, one wire going to your house. And so unfortunately, we need to have a monopoly electricity provider and we'll try to regulate it so it doesn't charge prices that are too high but you really can't let the free market provide electricity well if you believe that the only way to get power into your home is through a wire yeah then that's the way you would think and if we set up a regulatory system like that it may be that we never have anything other than a wire because there's very little incentive for somebody to come up with an alternative but hey suppose that entrepreneurs come along and develop uh, some kind of hydrogen fuel cell technology Right, Mark, imagine that you had a little fuel cell the size of a brick that could uh, power your house for a month. That sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah, every month you go to the store and get a new one, or, you know, like the Culligan man comes to your house and gives you a new brick once a month, and there are hundreds of different companies you can choose from to provide these bricks. You wouldn't need any wires. Likewise, there might be some totally different technology for getting information, you know, to your home and to your office that does not involve a satellite that does not involve a fiber optic cable coming to your house. I don't know what that is, but I have every confidence that somebody could come up with some alternatives if we gave them the incentives to do so. That's a really good point because, I mean, until you mentioned just now, I never even thought of the idea of having electricity delivered in any way other than our power lines. And it seems like once a system becomes entrenched, and obviously when these monopolies are coming in and controlling the electricity in certain municipalities, once they have that monopoly, well, they don't want to give it up, of course. So why would it ever change once that monopoly is entrenched? And it, it kind of prevents us from envisioning all the various ways that, that things really could develop if we did allow entrepreneurs to step in and find new ways to innovate and find new ways to deliver, whether it's our energy or whether it's our internet or what have you. Peter, one more thing I want to touch on, since you mentioned it earlier in the show, is uh, the subject of space, because it's, it's another one of those things like the internet, where my friends always tell me, hey, free markets, I love what you're talking about, it all sounds great, but let's be real. How would we ever have a man to the moon, like you said? How would we ever have all these great missions to Mars, where we're learning so much about the universe? So, I mean, do you actually think that we would have any kind of space exploration if there was no government involvement in it for, for people that are, I guess, uh, big big spacies out there? I don't know what you call people that are fans of space. Spacies <laughs> yeah. is my word. <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, I suspect we probably would, but I think anybody who looks seriously at something like the Apollo program, you know, not in a kind of romanticized, oh, it's really cool to think about people walking on the moon, not in a sci-fi movie sort of sense, but just if you, in terms of cold, hard facts, I mean, that was one of the biggest boondoggles in modern world history. I mean, billions and billions of dollars spent to do this because, you know, John F. Kennedy thought it would be good for national pride for us to beat the Russians, you know, to have the man on the moon. I mean, there's very little in the way of the return on investment was was just teeny, 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 tiny. And people say, oh, well, yeah, but what about all these technological spinoffs? You know, what about uh, consumer products, you know, fabrics, aerospace technologies? When I was a kid, they always talked about Tang, the instant breakfast drink, as the, you know, great spinoff of the Apollo program. Turns out it really wasn't, but, you know, even if it's true that we have some useful technologies, defense, consumer, whatever, that came out of the space program, well, we could have gotten those technologies lots of other ways. I mean, we spent billions and billions and billions of dollars. They're basically thrown down a, a sinkhole 
They provided employment for a lot of scientists in Houston and, you know, uh, uh, other cities around the world. Uh, they made, they got a lot of headlines. The government used it as a matter of prestige and so forth. But look, the fact that the government gives you something doesn't mean it's a good thing, right? It doesn't mean that that's valuable. doesn't mean that it's efficient. doesn't mean that it's a good use of resources. And I think most of the space program has been a huge, colossal waste of money and resources. I just assume that all that money be, you know, given to Steven Spielberg or, or Michael Bay and let them make sci-fi movies. At least some people would be uh, maybe more entertained by that, by some sci-fi space instead of, you know, the actual space footage, which is cool, but I mean, it's not as cool as Interstellar. <laughs> Let's be honest. By the way, I mean, you know, not to be too flippant about it, but uh, there's uh, a lot of studies of sort of, you know, space and military and defense technology. And it turns out that they're hugely overhyped. So right, just to give you one more example, your listeners' radar, we often hear that had it not been for uh, World War II, you know, government spending on defense during World War II to do the R&D uh, to develop uh, radar systems, you know, then we wouldn't we wouldn't have the modern commercial the radar technology and we wouldn't have a commercial aviation industry like we have today. It turns out if you look at the details carefully, you know, the 1930s, 1940s, there were several competing radar technologies and the government chose the least efficient one, probably for crony reasons, somebody got a payoff somewhere, and ended up sticking that technology on, you know, fighter planes and ground stations. And the kind of radar system that we now have is grossly inefficient. And from an engineering point of view, from a technological point of view, we have a terrible, terrible radar system. And, you know, what could have been a great radar system was corrupted by a bunch of government bureaucrats during the, you know, during wartime. So when people say, oh, well, the government gave us X and the government gave us Y, well, most of the time, the X and Y that we got are pretty crappy, <laughs> right? There are rare occasions when the government gave us something that turned out to be pretty good. But, you know, as they say, even a blind squirrel collects the occasional nut. So even if the government produces something that turns out to be pretty good, I mean, gosh, is that the kind of process we want to have where we get, you know, 99 horrible, expensive you know, failures that maybe end up killing people and so forth to get one occasional success. No, I'd rather do it. I'd rather let the private sector do it. Sure. I mean, even if uh, Charles Manson, let's say, solved the uh, the quadratic equation or something, uh, we, we we wouldn't we wouldn't just say, well, we must have serial killers figuring out all our all our math going forward. You know, it doesn't necessarily translate to that. I like that analogy. <laughs> Feel free to use it in the future as long as you credit me. Just kidding. You don't even need to credit me. Peter, thank you so much for joining me today. I really do uh, find your research interesting and, and find your perspective interesting, and I hope that some of our listeners can kind of maybe use some of this stuff as ammunition to a lot of those common objections that do come up, whether it pertains to the internet or, or space or that kind of thing. Before I let you go, why don't you just take a second to let everybody know where they can find your work, how they can get in touch with you, and feel free to plug anything else you've got going on. Sure. I appreciate it, Mark. Thanks for having me on. Um, my Twitter name is Peter G. Klein. It's K-L-E-I-N. And my website is PeterGKlein.com. You can also just do a Google search for Peter Klein. And uh, so far, I'm the first person that comes up in that Google search. So I uh, look forward to talking to you again, Mark. And I'd be happy to hear from any of your listeners by you know email or, or they can tweet me or whatever. Uh, I'd love to talk about this stuff more. Thank you very much, Peter. Take care. Thanks a lot. Alrighty, righty, folks, I hope you enjoyed my interview with Mr. Peter Klein, talking about government and how it influences technology. 
Many people will often tell you that it influences technology in a positive way. And when I say government, I like to clarify this. I don't just mean the concept of government. As I've discussed on this show many times before, I have no problem with the concept of government in the sense of people coming together through their private property to create their own set of laws, their own systems to enforce natural law. But this must be done voluntarily. It must be done without coercion. And obviously that is a vastly different situation that we have in our current government. So my real objection isn't to government funding science, it's to coercively funding science. And that is essentially what we're talking about here today with the U.S. government being a a coercive entity. You know, all the funds are definitely extracted through coercion, although I do have some friends that happily send their tax checks, but even they seem to uh, have accountants that that get their taxes down too, so I'm not sure how happily they send their money in either. But it's a good point. I mean, it is difficult for me to even counter this idea that the government invented the internet, because they did invent the internet. And I can't really counter the idea that the government did coercively fund a mission to space and that, hey, it's pretty cool we put a man on the moon and it's pretty cool that we have missions to Mars and all this stuff, but... At the end of the day, this is just a really big example of the ends supposedly justifying the means. Well, to me, the ends never justify the means if the means involve violating the individual rights of others. And coercive taxation that is used to fund anything, including missions to space, including the creation of the internet, would fall under that category as well to me. Of course, it's wonderful we have the internet, but there's no real reason to believe that technology would not have continued advancing if the government didn't specifically create its version of the ARPANET. Private companies have created their own versions of information delivery systems as well, and it might look completely different than we have now. It more likely would be extremely more efficient if the internet was purely developed by entrepreneurs and, and if the internet was purely delivered to us in a free market method, not to be confused with the free market method that people many claim we currently have if we remove net neutrality, and I'm glad we addressed that point because that is one of the problems with, I think, the way the quote-unquote right wing will argue against net neutrality. They'll say, well, these companies came to an agreement and it's all good and you know we don't, we don't need this kind of regulation, and, and I do agree we don't need the regulation in its current form because I agree with Peter Klein's sort of analysis of that, that you know ultimately this is probably just going to lead to even worse regulation, even worse service, and the FCC colluding with those very same companies that people are upset with. So the real solution is to scale it all back. Does that seem like a daunting task? Yes, it does. (laughs) Does that look like something that's going to happen anytime soon? Probably not. But it's important to really get to the root causes of these problems and not just look to a government regulation to solve everything here and there, any issues that might arise, even when those issues do arise from crony capitalist institutions, from local municipalities having control over over our content delivery systems. Really, nothing's going to improve until we do address those root causes. So I think whether we have net neutrality or don't, we're not going to get the best information delivery we could. We're not going to get the best internet we could ever get until we really do have a true free market. And that's only going to come, of course, folks, when the people change their views about how these things would work. That is, of course, why I do interviews like this with Mr. Klein. That is, of course, why I do this show each and every week, twice a week. If you can believe that, two times a week, every Monday and Thursday, you can find the show over at lionsofliberty.com. You can find us in a million different ways. Maybe not actually a million. Maybe I'm exaggerating. But you can find us over on iTunes. You can find us on Stitcher. Don't forget to check out our YouTube channel. I'm now posting all of our podcasts up on YouTube as well. Of course, come and discuss these issues with us on our social media, facebook.com slash lionsofliberty, over on the Twitter, at lionsofliberty, over on Google+. You can leave comments on our website, comments on our YouTube page. Join us in our Lions of Liberty forum on Facebook. We will link to that again in the show notes, which you can find at lionsofliberty.com slash 108 for all the information about Mr. Klein and, and many of the issues that we discussed here today. Until next time, folks, I only have one 
tiny little request, and that is for you to live long and live free. Head of Editing and Mastering is John Dahlberg.